0: May we bow our heads in prayer as we sit. Our Father, be with us this evening, I pray. Help us in all that we think and say and do to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Put your love in our hearts that we may honor you and glorify you and uh, preach and praise the name of Jesus Christ for whose sake we ask it. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, you might like to keep it open at uh, that passage which was just read for us from the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, because I want to concentrate our minds uh, for a few minutes this evening uh, on that very interesting and somewhat unusual story. It's an unusual story for a number of reasons. Uh, John in his Gospel tells us at the beginning. Uh, that uh, Jesus was getting into trouble a little bit in Judea, in Jerusalem, where he had been preaching. Uh, People had noticed that he was becoming uh, rather too popular, and uh, he figured that it was time to just go away for a while uh, and go back to his home, uh, which was in the north, in Galilee. But To get from Jerusalem to Nazareth, where he came from, uh, he, uh, the shortest way to go uh, was to pass through uh, the land of Samaria, uh, which uh, was a country uh, that was inhabited uh, by people who believed that they were Jews, uh, but were not accepted uh, by the others. They weren't accepted because they had peculiar customs. Uh, They had their own form of worship. Uh, They had their own scriptures, uh, only part of the Old Testament. Uh, And generally, uh, they distanced themselves from uh, the temple in Jerusalem and so on. So the Jews uh, who uh, worshipped in Jerusalem, like Jesus himself, of course, uh, on the whole uh, avoided them. Uh, They didn't go there. They didn't have anything to do uh, with Samaritans. But Jesus was in a hurry to get home, uh, and so he passed through their country. And as he was doing this, on the way, uh, he and his disciples stopped uh, in this town called Sychar, which was uh, one of the places in Samaria that was particularly famous uh, because it was there that Jacob, the patriarch of Israel from way back, uh, nearly 2,000 years before, had dug a well. Uh, And Jacob's well was uh, a very famous landmark. In fact, it's still there today. Uh, If you go to uh, Israel, uh, you know, the Palestine, and you want to see somewhere that Jesus was, uh, you can go to Jacob's well and uh, you can take your picture there and say, you sat where Jesus sat, uh, you know, by the well, uh, by Jacob's well in Sychar. So it's still there. It's still a landmark uh, of the land. And that's where he was. It was a little bit strange, though, because it was the middle of the day. His disciples uh, were, had gone off into the town to uh, get some food, and I guess they were going to bring it back. And they'd left Jesus there just to rest uh, and, and recover from the journey. While Jesus was sitting there like this, uh, a local woman came along to uh, draw water from the well, and Jesus asked her if she would give him a drink. Now, the woman was surprised by this. She recognized that Jesus was Jewish, and she knew, of course, that the Jews didn't have any uh, dealings with Samaritans. So why was this man speaking to her? It's one thing. Another thing, of course, men on their own didn't speak to women on their own like that. Uh, It wasn't done in ancient society. A strange man speaking to a woman he'd never met uh, in in any circumstances. I mean, this was an unusual thing to do. Uh, And uh, so the woman was really surprised by this. But she must have been even more surprised uh, when Jesus' uh, reaction—you know—when when she she said, "Why are you asking me?" Uh, Jesus' reaction was, "Well, if you knew who I was, uh, it wouldn't be me asking you for a glass uh, or you know for some water to drink, but you would be asking me because I could give you living water." Now, what did the woman make of that? Uh, what would you make of that if somebody said it to you? Living water. What is living water? She had no idea. Uh, and so she puzzled over this and she said, Well, uh, you don't have any bucket. You don't have any way of getting down into this well uh, you know, to get the water. What do you mean? How are you going to get this living water that you promised to me? And then she said, don't tell me that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob. You know, Jacob who, who, who gave us this well. Uh, now in saying this, of course, uh, the woman was throwing out uh, what we would today call a provocative statement. She was saying something uh, that she probably realized uh, Jesus wouldn't like to hear. Why not? Because she was calling Jacob our father. In other words, she was claiming, as a Samaritan, to be a descendant of Jacob. That is to say, to be one of the nation of Israel. Because, of course, Jacob uh, was was Israel. Israel was the name given to him. And all Israelites were descended from Jacob. So this woman is claiming Jacob as her ancestor and thereby making a statement, uh, if you like, to Jesus, saying, well, I'm just as good as you are. You know, you Jews who ignore us, who don't like us and don't talk to us and so on, uh, you know, we're, we're just as Jewish as you are uh, and you shouldn't think like this. Well, Jesus ignored that. He just sort of, you know, passed over that at this point, uh, and instead of getting involved in that conversation, uh, he he carried on with what he had was already saying, and saying that uh, he could give living water, living water which would give this woman eternal life. You see, that would. Uh, be a completely different kind of thing uh, to what anything that she had ever heard of or had any experience of before. Well, the woman, of course, didn't get this at all. I mean, she just could not figure out what on earth Jesus was saying. But she turned to him and said, well, you know, if, if, re- if you can really do this, then give me this living water because that way I won't have to come back to the well and keep drawing water like this. She said, I don't think she could really believe what Jesus was saying. Well, of course, Jesus didn't mean it like that. The living water was not some kind of special water, uh, you know, uh, sort of boiled and uh, ready for drinking or something like this. No, it, he was talking on a different level altogether. The living water was not a substance uh, like the water from the well that you would drink. It was rather a spiritual understanding, a spiritual experience uh, which he could give. But of course the woman, this was beyond her understanding. She just couldn't uh, think in those terms. And so Jesus had to try something else to get through to her, see how to communicate to this woman, how to make her understand uh, that what he was saying uh, was something quite different. It was on a different level altogether. And so he turns to her and says, go and get your husband. Now this was a natural and normal thing to say because, as I've already pointed out, strange men didn't talk to women they didn't know. Uh, and the conversation was getting a, a little bit too deep, uh, you know, to be just a sort of passing something in passing. Uh, if they were going to have a serious discussion, uh, then uh, it would have been important uh, to have somebody there as a witness, uh, you know, somebody who could uh, make sure that there was nothing uh, improper going on uh, and obviously, uh, the best person to do this would have been the woman's husband. But in making this perfectly natural and normal and everyday request, of course, the, re- the response was something quite different uh, from what you might expect. Because the woman turns to Jesus and said, well, I haven't got a husband. Well, all right, she didn't have a husband. Uh, but Jesus, of course, knew, and this was his way, and this was the point where he could actually say something, and he said, no, you're quite right about that. You have had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband at all. Now, at this point, the woman suddenly understood that Jesus knew something about her uh, that uh, nobody could have told him. He was a a visitor. He was a stranger. He didn't know who she was. Of course, everybody in her village would have known uh, this, but Jesus hadn't spoken to any of them. Uh, And so where did uh, this man, this strange man in her mind, get this knowledge from? And of course, although she didn't really know very much and she couldn't think uh, very deeply about this. She figured that if he knows this, if he knows something about me that no other human being could tell him, uh, she, he must have some connection with God. And what kind of people have a connection with God? Well, those were the prophets, the prophets who, uh, to whom God spoke, uh, and they uh, gave the word of God to the people. So the woman turns to Jesus and said, Oh, I get it. You must be some kind of prophet because you wouldn't know uh, about this uh, you know, otherwise. But instead of pursuing the, the, the subject directly, when she, she got it into her head, you see that Jesus was a prophet, she then uh, launched into what to her was a deep theological discussion. You see, uh, she started off. She knew that as a Samaritan, she was different from the Jews. Well, now she was going to pursue this a little bit further. And she said, "Our people, people around here, we worship up on this mountain you see over there. Uh, that 's our custom, that 's our tradition, that 's what we 've done all the time. But you Jews, you say you 've got to go to Jerusalem. you 've got to go and worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Now who is right? You see, uh, what's wrong with worshiping on this mountain? Why do, we, why do you criticize us? Uh, why should we have to go to Jerusalem uh, to worship there? Now, perhaps she was trying to change the subject. She didn't want to talk about her five husbands uh, and the man she was living with right then, perhaps. Perhaps she was curious. She'd always wondered about this. Uh, but didn't know who to ask. Uh, You know, and along comes somebody who might be able to give her some kind of answer. Don't know. Perhaps she felt this was the best way of getting rid of Jesus. Uh, you know, this embarrassing person who had told her things uh, like this. And, uh, you know, by raising this kind of theological question, uh, Jesus might sort of, you know, just move off and and figure, well, there's no point uh, pursuing that. Uh, You know, we're not going to go uh, get anywhere with this. Well, of course, Jesus responds to her uh, by defending the Jews. He says, "Uh, you people, you Samaritans, Uh, you know, you worship what you don't know, you don't understand. Uh, I mean, you may be sincere and you may be worshiping God in in a way that, uh, you know, you think is okay, uh, but you haven't got the fullness of the revelation of God. Uh, You don't see the whole purposes of God. You've kind of reduced it uh, to uh, a minimum and are going along with that. Uh, But I'm telling you that it's the Jews who know the fullness of the truth, the Jews who uh, have kept the word of God in its fullness and in its purity, and it is uh, through the revelation given to the Jews that salvation would come into the world. So Jesus didn't bend, uh, as it were, uh, theologically. You see, he didn't say, uh, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, You know, you're just as good as we are and so on. No, he spoke very clearly and he said, well, you know, basically, we're right and you're wrong. I mean, he put it like that. But at the same time, he didn't leave it there. He didn't try to tell the woman, uh, well, you know, you better go to Jerusalem because that's the right thing to do. Uh, No, he didn't say that he said you need to go beyond this you see it's all right whether you worship on this mountain or whether you worship in the temple in jerusalem in the final analysis it doesn't really make that much difference why not well because god uh, it doesn't live on the mountain and god doesn't live in the temple in jerusalem god is a spirit God is a spiritual being. And if you are going to worship him in the way that he wants you to do, uh, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. And, of course, you can do this wherever you are. You can do this right here and right now. You see, the important thing is that it should be on the inside and not on the outside. Not just the external things that you do, but the internal things that uh, are the most important. Now, of course, we read this story and we, we, we see this and we, we would think, okay, well, that seems to be you know perfectly normal. You know, what's the problem? But if we stop and think about this a little more, and if we think of the way many of us uh, react uh, to things like this, we may see that the woman at the well is more like us than we might like to think. The woman at the well was uh, fascinated, if you like, by uh, the way people worshiped, by rituals, by ceremonies, uh, by uh, the outward signs of religion. She wanted to know, know what the right way was. And there are many people uh, in the world today who are like this. Uh, I've been teaching for a number of years uh, in a theological college, which is interdenominational. That means that we've got Baptists, and we've got Methodists, and we've got Presbyterians, and we've got uh, Lutherans, and we've got Anglicans, and so on. You see, different denominations are there. And my job for many years, I was the so-called Anglican Professor of Divinity, which basically meant that I was supposed to teach and defend Anglicanism. Now, I love the Anglican Church. I think Anglican worship is wonderful. Uh, I'm very happy about it. I think Uh, you know, it's a great blessing from God uh, that he has given us the kind of worship that we have. Why do I think this? I think this because it is so well balanced. Uh, It is balanced in uh, what it says about God's promises, God's uh, gifts uh, to us. Uh, It gives us uh, a way of uh, thanking him for this, uh, a way of praying to him, that honors him. It takes us through the whole of the Bible uh, and uh, it lifts us up to a deeper understanding uh, of who he is and of what he has done. Uh, if you follow the prayer book and the services that we have, uh, you know if you, if you respect uh, the different aspects of the liturgy that is laid down for us, you will get a very consistent, a very balanced, uh, and a very good foundation uh, for your Christian faith. Uh, and I will defend that. I will, I will uh, advocate that. Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing to have. But when you are in a public position, as I was, uh, defending Anglicanism, at least supposedly, uh, you are a target for people who think a little bit differently. People will come to me and they will say things like, what do Anglicans think about something or other? Like, what do Anglicans think about space aliens. You know, I mean, if somebody from Mars lands on Earth, uh, does this person need Jesus as his savior? Well, how do you answer a question like that? You know, do Anglicans have a special view about this? Uh, I really don't think so. But some people think they must, you know, because we're Anglicans. We must, we must have a particular view about everything, and they want to know. And then there are other people who uh, dig into certain aspects uh, of the Anglican church, who see certain things, and uh, they get all wrapped up in ceremony. Uh, when I was a, a, a young uh, curate in London, and church in London, i never forget... Uh, one uh, staff meeting we had when the clergy got together. Uh, And it was was just in March. It was in the middle of March. And we were preparing uh, for a service on the 25th of March. Now, of course, you're all good Anglicans, so you know what the 25th of March is, don't you? The 25th of March is the day on which Uh, the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would become the mother of the Savior. Why is it the 25th of March? Well, because that's exactly nine months before the 25th of December. And you know what happened on that day, at least supposedly. So the 25th of March is uh, the day set aside for this. Well, that's all right. I mean, nothing wrong with that. But our staff discussion that day or not that day, but the week before, because this, this particular year, the 25th of March fell on a Sunday, and of course it came in the middle of Lent. This may not worry you very much, uh, but my staff colleagues were very uh, perturbed by this, because what color of vestments were we going to wear in church that Sunday? And there was one who argued we should wear purple because it's Lent. And that's the color of Lent. And then there was one who argued we should wear white because white honors the purity of the Virgin Mary and it's her special day, so we should do that for her. And then there was one who argued that we should wear gold. And I'm not quite sure where he got that idea from But I think it was because somebody in the church had given us a set of gold uh, vestments and he just wanted to wear them, you know, looking for an opportunity to do this. Well, when it came to me, of course, I was just, you know, I didn't know what to say. I mean, what do you say when you're in that kind of discussion? So I said, well, uh, this is obviously causing a problem. You know, we can't agree about this. So let's not wear anything. You know, if if somebody's going to be bothered if you wear purple and somebody's going to be bothered if you wear white and somebody's going to be bothered if you wear gold, uh, let's just not bother. You know, let's just go in uh, without any vestments, without any stoles, and then everybody will be happy. Well, I didn't understand anything, did I? You know, you could just see the look on their faces sort of, Get thee behind me, Satan. You know, who are you? You're spoiling our fun, you see, with this. Well, in the end, uh, my rector, who was a a great peacemaker, decided that we were going to wear red. And the reason he decided on red was because nobody else had suggested this, you see. So everybody lost, uh, but uh, we ended up wearing red. Well now, you find this hard to believe, but this was an entire staff meeting discussing this. You see? And it mattered to the people who were discussing it. This was the thing that, bothered, that amazed me. Uh, you know, that someone's life was so uh, sort of empty uh, that uh, they could spend two or three hours arguing the merits of one thing over another. And I just couldn't get my head around this. Uh, Not that I minded, I mean, I would have happily worn white, I would have happily worn purple, I would have happily worn gold, and in the end, I quite happily wore red. Uh, You know, it didn't worry me one way uh, or the other, and I could accept anything. uh, But uh, don't sit around arguing about this uh, as if the fate of the world depended on it. You see, this is the thing. And years later, I, I recall this a little bit because uh, we, uh, when I was teaching uh, uh, later the, in this interdenominational institution, one of my colleagues, a Lutheran, uh, believes, uh, he still believes, uh, that Lutherans and Anglicans are pretty much the same. Uh, in fact, he thinks Lutherans and Anglicans are so much the same, why don't Anglicans all become Lutherans? You see, that's the way he looks at it. And I said, well, you think Lutherans and Anglicans are the same. And I said, in a way, you're right. I said, but there is a difference. And he said, what's that? I said, Anglicans have a sense of humor. He didn't get it. Um, what do you mean? You know, that, that wasn't a theological argument in his mind. Um, well, we're good friends, don't get me wrong, we're quite good friends, but he just had a rather different approach to these things. But w- sitting around arguing about this, of course, discussing this, this is one thing, but when it came to commun- comes to communion, when we have communion together in- with interdenominational uh, things, um, my Lutheran friend won't take communion with the rest of us because we're Samaritans, you know. Uh, we don't have the right doctrine, Uh, we don't do things in the right way. And I get into trouble with him over this, because as an Anglican, I'm supposed to side with him. You see, because Anglicans are just like Lutherans, according to him. So I'm supposed to think like this. I can never quite get my mind around that. Uh, you know I, I try, I try to understand. Uh, but I say to myself, well, I'm in an interdenominational context. I'm in a different place, uh, and if they give me a little bit of bread, and if they hand round uh, you know, the, the, the wine in little cups instead of in one cup like this, um, I'm not going to complain about it. And my Lutheran friend says to me, said, so, "But you wouldn't do that yourself, would you?" I said, no. Uh, I said, your church doesn't do that, does it? I said, no. So why do you do it? And I said, well, because I'm not in my church and I'm not running this particular show. I said, this is what they're doing. This is what means something to them. And I said, the most important thing, it seems to me, is not, uh, you know, this kind of thing, not this kind of issue. It is to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, quoting what Jesus says here uh, in John 4. I said, and if people's hearts are in the right place, if they are wanting to glorify God in their lives, who am I to stand up and say, you should do it this way and not that way? Now, I'm sharing this with you because a lot of people think like this. You see, a lot of people can get very upset Uh, when things are done in a way that they're not used to. A lot of people attach great importance uh, to uh, the ceremonies, to the rituals, to the way things are always done. Now, I'm not saying that these things are unimportant. I'm not saying that these things don't have a meaning. Of course they do and they do matter. And it is important that whatever you do and however you worship, you worship in a way which is respectful, which is decent, and which is honoring to the glory of God. Yes. But if somebody does something a little different, uh, you know, uh, you don't get upset about this and walk out. Because sometimes, you see, they're doing something different for reasons which you may not understand. Uh, you know, Maybe they, they, they do something like this uh, uh, for reasons which make sense to them uh, and they just haven't explained it to you and you don't really know why. Uh, and if you pass judgment on them uh, without uh, considering that they might have some point of their own to make, uh, you could be rather hasty about this. Uh, tell you another story you're going to think I'm terrible when I finish but anyhow, uh, tell you the story about what happened uh, in my parish uh, one time I had to perform a baptism and uh, I was very particular about this running around, you know, getting everything set up for the baptism and so on and, uh, and I was, I, I'm always very nervous at this, I'm, I'm a fussy person, you know, I like to have everything set down and know what I'm doing and all the rest of it so uh, I, I, you know, I did my best, because I didn't want to do anything wrong. I didn't want uh, to upset anybody, you see, this way. Just do it the right way. Well, all right, you see, we got to the baptism, and I go down, you see, to the font, and I lift the lid off the font, and suddenly realize I'd forgotten to put water in the font. I just forgot. I was so busy doing other things but you know, it's hard to baptize without water. So what do you do? So I just put the lid back on the font and I bowed and I walked out very slowly out of the church. And as soon as I was out of sight, I rushed to a tap. I got a bowl of water, filled it with water, and then came back and held up the water like this and walked down the church, took the lid off the font, poured the water into the, into the font and you know, made the sign of the cross and blessed it, and so on, and then carried on with the baptism. It's what you have to do. Uh, you know, and you mustn't ever give the impression that you made a mistake. After the service, some man came up to me and said, "I've never seen anyone do that before." And I said, "Well, you know." Things are changing fast in the church these days. I said, you should come more often, and you might not be so surprised. You say that, just throw it back at him uh, like this. But ever after that, I thought to myself, you know, that poor man, I wonder what happened if he ever went to another baptism somewhere else and discovered that the priest there didn't do that. I mean, would he have said, but you missed the blessing of the water? You left it out. You know, what did you done? And I felt I'd invented a tradition, you see. Well, it was a good, tra- I, mean, I, don't have any, I don't apologize for this. I mean, that was, I thought it was a good thing to do, why not? Uh, you know, uh, and so on. But if somebody then were to say, well, this is what you do and this is what you have to do and this is the right thing to do and started criticizing somebody else because they didn't do it, uh, this would be rather embarrassing. You see, because in fact, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. I had to do something, and so that's what I did, you know, and fair enough. But a lot of things in the church, you see, are like this. They may be good and right and proper in themselves. There's nothing wrong with them. Uh, but they aren't the the, the law of God. Uh, they aren't things that, you say that, that absolutely have to be, because if you don't do it like this, uh, you know, God isn't, ble- isn't happy about it. God isn't blessing you or whatever like this. Uh, you see, you mustn't think like that. And this was the problem that the woman at the well had. You see, she was wrapped up uh, in, uh, in outward things. You see, things that mattered to her. And so Jesus had to move her on. He had to move her on to think uh, about (laughs) worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. What is going on in her heart? What is going on in her life? Now, at this point, the woman, I think, must have realized that she'd run out of arguments. Uh, And this happens sometimes. You know, people just don't know what to say. So uh, she said, well... uh, I know that uh, there's somebody coming, the Messiah. The Messiah is coming, and she didn't, probably didn't really know who the Messiah was, but uh, you know, some great prophet, some great king, some, somebody's coming, and when the Messiah comes, uh, he'll solve all these problems. You know, He'll tell us the answer. He knows what he's doing. Uh, we won't have to worry about this anymore, uh, and everything will be okay. And it's when she said that, That Jesus looked at her and said, you're expecting the Messiah. Ah, let me tell you something. I am the Messiah. I am the one that you are looking for. I am the one who is telling you all that you need to know in order to worship God in the right way. You see, you've got to this point, this is who I am. Now, there are a lot of lessons in this for us. When you're talking to somebody about your faith, you may find that the people you talk to, some of the people you talk to anyway, really don't have any idea what you're saying. You know, they just don't think like that. They're not interested in that sort of thing. And you may feel very frustrated because you say something to them and they just don't get it. You know, they just don't understand... Uh, what you mean, and they can't think in your way. And it may take something surprising. You see, it may take something unusual, like when Jesus said to this woman, you have had five husbands. You see, he told her something uh, that only God could have revealed to him. It may take something like that before somebody that you're talking to really wakes up, and really begins to see uh, that spiritual things matter, uh, that there is a a dimension of human life uh, that isn't uh, restricted to, you know, what's the best way to get water out of the well or something like this, uh, that there's something more important than that. And you may find when you're talking to other people that you've got to move them in this direction. You've got to get them thinking about spiritual things And then concentrating on where they stand spiritually in the presence of God. And where we stand spiritually in the presence of God is really quite clear. You and I are sinners who need a savior. We may think we're very different from the woman at the well. And of course, in some ways, that's true. But in other ways, the woman at the well is not so different from us, because in your life and in my life, there are things that shouldn't be there. Now, I don't want to know what they are. I don't care how many husbands you've had or how many wives you've had or anything like this. Uh, You know, that's your business. I'm not going to interfere. And. Uh, And I don't know. I'm I'm not the Messiah. I can't look into your heart and mind like this. But God sees what I can't see. You see, to me, you look like perfectly normal, ordinary, very nice people. But to God, you look like people who have turned away from him. You see, he can see into your heart. He can see into your mind. He knows what you are thinking. Uh, even when you're not very clear about this yourself. And he knows that however well-intentioned you are, however good you are, and so on, there's something in your life, there's still something in your life which, is, which is, shouldn't be there, which is in rebellion against him, which he wants to reach down and he wants to pull it out. He wants to take it out, you see, because uh, it shouldn't be there. He wants to put you right. He wants to give you, in the words of Jesus, the water of eternal life. You see, he he wants to take out what's wrong and put what is right inside. And it's only when you understand that, uh, and you understand that this is why he came into the world. This is what he came for, to do this. You see, to give you something that you can't get for yourself It's when you start to understand that, that the whole message and ministry and mission of Jesus starts to make sense. You see, Jesus wasn't concerned about rituals, and he wasn't concerned about what you wore, and he wasn't concerned about, you know, what hymns you sing and all this sort of thing. I mean, that's fine, uh, but he was concerned about what was going on in your life. What is going on in your heart, how you relate to the God who made you, to the God who wants to save you. Are you worshiping him in spirit and in truth? Or are are you just going through the rituals, going through the ceremonies, uh, and so on, because that's what we do, uh, and it it just sort of sails over your head, you know, you don't really think very deeply about it. Because if that's the case, you see, if you're just sort of here because, well, there's nothing better to do uh, on a Sunday evening, you're missing out on something vitally important in your life. See, the woman at the well didn't know this, uh, but she was privileged in a way uh, that very few people are. She was privileged because (laughs) she had the Son of God sitting next to her, talking to her one-to-one, uh, you know, and telling her uh, what she needed to do, telling her what she needed to have in her life, and promising her eternity, promising her eternal life. You know what a wonderful thing, what an amazing thing uh, to happen uh, to this woman. We don't even know what her name was. You know, there's no name given. She's anonymous uh, to us, and yet she's a very real person. You see, she's a very real person who needed the savior. In her life. And this is true of you, and this is true of me. Now, tonight we're coming around the Lord's table. We're going to remember what Jesus did, uh, that he didn't just come into the world uh, to tell people who he was, but he came into the world in order to do something uh, for us that nobody else could do. And that something was to take our sins, take your sin and my sin on himself to pay the price for that sin to die on the cross uh, for us so that we could live in eternity that we could be forgiven for the sins that we have committed that those things could be wiped away and that we could be given new life in Jesus Christ and when we come To this table, when we take that bit of bread and we take that uh, wine into ourselves, this is what we are remembering. This is what we are pledging ourselves to. This is what we are claiming for us. And what I want to do tonight is just challenge you on this. You see, that when you come to the table, uh, what's going to be going through your mind? Are you going to be thinking, uh, you know, we have wafers. We don't have bread. We have a little, uh, we, have, we drink from the common cup, not from different cups. Uh, this is not very strong wine. Uh, I mean, you, are, is this the kind of thing you're going to be thinking about, you know? Or are you going to think, this is my commitment to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I am making a public declaration that he Uh, belongs to me and that I belong to him, that I want him in my life. I want to worship him in spirit and in truth. I want him to go deep down inside, just as that bread and that wine is going to go deep down inside, and I want him to change me. You see, I want him to clean out all those things in my life that are wrong. I want him to put me on the right track I want to to leave this place this evening knowing that I have been in the presence of God, knowing that God has reached out to me, knowing that God has made a promise to me that if I am faithful to him, if I worship him in spirit and in truth, he will come and live in my heart. He will guide me. He will correct me. He will protect me from my own silliness, from my own folly. He will make me, me his child. He will give me the strength to live for him every day, to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. You see that this is the promise of God given to us in his Holy Spirit, that the things which have passed, they're gone. They're taken away. You've been forgiven. You don't have to bear this burden anymore. You see, just let it go. Uh, because he has paid the price for that. And walk in newness of life. Walk with that water of, of living uh, power, uh, of the Spirit of God uh, in your heart. That's what he holds out to you. And I pray as you come to the table this evening that that's what you'll be thinking about, that you want to do that. You want to have that in your life. And I want you to have that in your life. I want you to go out of this uh, church this evening knowing that you have been in the presence of God, knowing that he has spoken to you and that you have responded to him, and then we'll see a change. You see, we'll see uh, that in your life, uh, and I hope and pray in my life, there will be a, the presence of God's Holy Spirit, there will be a change. Uh, There will be something new, something wonderful, uh, something that no human being could ever give to you. This is the power of God. This is the presence of God. Uh, This is the promise of God to you and to me. And so I leave that with you right now. Uh, We're coming around the Lord's table. Respond, I ask you, Uh, in the way that I have challenged, in the way that I have uh, suggested to you, and you will see, you will find uh, that this is a reality that will reach into your life, that will change you, that will set you free, uh, and that uh, just as Jesus promised to that woman at the well so long ago, he will give to you the water of eternal life. Thank you.